this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, this is Rachel Vanderland, cardiac surgery resident at the University of Toronto in Canada. Surgical management of total anomalous pulmonary vein connections, or TAPVC, with Dr. Christopher Calderon, the surgeon-in-chief and staff congenital cardiovascular surgeon at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. Today we will discuss preoperative workup, intraoperative strategies, and postoperative management of a term baby with the postnatal diagnosis of infradiaphragmatic total anomalous pulmonary vein connections. For this case, the child was, bo- uh, was born at 38 weeks and 5 days and was transferred from a community hospital at one day of life with a suspected diagnosis of infra- infradiaphragmatic TAPVC based on a bedside echo. Saturations of the child were in the 70s to 80s and the child was subsequ- subsequently intubated and lined and epi was started for borderline uh, blood pressure. The child was transferred to SickKids for further management. What is the initial workup strategy and key findings uh, of a child with suspected TAPVC that will help to define the management plan? Well, some of the first considerations are the anatomic configuration of the pulmonary veins. Uh, As you know, there are four different subtypes, supracardiac, the intracardiac or coronary sinus type, the subdiaphragmatic or infracardiac type, and the mixed type. Uh, The uh, category of the anatomic configuration is important because the different subtypes carry different risks. Also, of course, you're going to want to look for associated anomalies, specifically left atrial isomerism, and uh, you're going to want to categorize what is the obligate shunt in a patient with uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage. Of course, they have to have some kind of shunt at either the atrial or the ventricular level in order to maintain a systemic cardiac output. Usually it's an atrial septal defect, but occasionally it will be a ventricular septal defect. Additionally, it's going to be important to get a good assessment of the patient's physiologic status. Is the patient acidotic? Uh, Are the lungs congested? Does the patient uh, um, have other organ injury due to uh, low systemic cardiac output? You need to put this all together in order to uh, develop a management plan. Are there any additional key diagnostic tests that that you would like prior to uh, planning a management strategy? Well, again, uh, understanding the anatomic diagnosis is going to be really important. The, um, uh, I guess one of the key uh, prognosticators here that you're going to want to evaluate is the size of the pulmonary vein confluence. This can be pretty readily detected on echocardiogram, but uh, a very small pulmonary vein confluence uh, may uh, influence the type of surgical repair you do, and we'll talk about that more when we get to the uh, actual uh, um, nuts and bolts of the operative procedure. So for this child, uh, once uh, transferred to SickKids, uh, an echo confirms uh, the infracardiac uh, TAPVC uh, with mild to moderate obstruction. There was also a moderate size uh, ASD that was shunting right to left and a PDA. The RVSP was super systemic and the decision was for urgent operative repair. So what are the key points 
for determining the timing of definitive surgical management? Well, uh, as you pointed out in this kid, there's mild to moderate obstruction with the infracardiac portion of the pulmonary veins. Um, this is pretty common with infradiaphragmatic uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous connection. Uh, they're not always, but have a very, very high uh, proportion of uh, patients who will have obstruction at that level. The uh, supracardiac uh, pulmonary veins are much less commonly uh, obstructed, although they can be where the vertical vein passes between the pulmonary artery and the bronchus. Um, the, uh, um, so the key points in terms of timing is really to get assessment of how this obstruction uh, may influence the physiologic state of the patient. Now, traditionally in the past, where there are very limited maneuvers available to deal with obstructed total anomalous pulmonary veins, uh, the diagnosis of anomalous pulmonary venous drainage with obstruction was considered a surgical emergency, a true surgical emergency, and the patient needed to get to the operating room uh, to relieve the pulmonary vein obstruction. Uh, otherwise, they would uh, continue to spiral downward with poor cardiac output. I think there are some other alternatives now that are more commonly used, and uh, one might be to get the patient to the cath lab for a stent of the vertical vein. Um, this is uh, um, in a patient who is very unstable with uh, evidence of evolving multi-organ injury. This is uh, a reasonable strategy because you can get uh, better systemic cardiac output pretty quickly. Uh, taken into an, another level, uh, you can put the patient on ECMO in order to support them for multi, uh, from their multi-organ recovery, uh, give you an opportunity to do a neurologic assessment and then bring the patient to the operating room for repair. Or you can even do a combined strategy where you might get the patient on ECMO, then get them to the cath lab to uh, decompress the vertical vein and thereby allow the lungs to be in a little better shape when you actually get to the operating room. So these are all kind of evolving strategies and they're um, the traditional response that obstructed total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage is a surgical emergency is undergoing some refinement with these newer techniques. The last thing I'll mention is that um, there have been reports where uh, patients have been unfit for surgical repair due to a variety of other organ lesions and uh, have undergone catheter-based uh, uh, perforation between the pulmonary vein confluence and the left atrium and then placement of a stent which effectively uh, treats their anomalous pulmonary venous drainage uh, albeit with a, 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 as a temporizing maneuver because all the uh, cardiac output will have to go through that stent and then they can be brought to the operating room for a more uh, definitive repair at a later date. So there, there's a lot of new uh, strategies here that are changing the urgency with which these patients need to get to the operating room and changing the ability with which we can make them better operative candidates before their definitive repair. So what would be the surgical approaches for infracardiac TAPVC? Well, I think that the uh, surgical approach actually could be considered somewhat generically for almost any total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage. Um, the bypass strategy is typically aortobicaval cannulation. 
uh, integrate cardioplegia. We used Del Nido cardioplegia, and we would cool, uh, cool pretty promptly down to 32 degrees. Uh, the reason you want to cool right away is because you may need to use periods of low-flow bypass or even progress to circulatory arrest in the rare case when you need better visualization of the pulmonary veins. During this cooling period, you can attend to whatever other uh, cardiac lesions might be present. Um, the approach to get at the pulmonary vein confluence uh, can be from the left side, from the right side, or from a superior approach. Uh, I very rarely use the superior approach, uh, although uh, some favor it, uh, especially in patients with a large pulmonary vein confluence, uh, which can be located uh, behind the heart between the aorta and the superior vena cava. Um, more commonly, uh, people use either a left or right-sided approach. A right-sided approach uh, involves creation of a, a transverse right atriotomy, and then you cut across the atrial septum uh, through the uh, um, through the uh, limbus, and this uh, gains access to the left atrium. Of course, when you look in the left atrium, you'll see a mitral valve, but you won't see any pulmonary veins. Um, uh, incision that can then may be made in the posterior left atrial wall extending leftwards and then retracting everything upwards will expose the pulmonary vein confluence which can then be incised. Uh, then you would uh, create an anastomosis between the divided edges of the left atrium and the pulmonary veins um, while kind of retracting the heart upwards. This is a, a nice approach because it's uh, easy to get a very precise uh, um, orientation between the incision in the back of the left atrium and the pulmonary vein confluence. You can do that with a great deal of precision. You can also see the mitral valve so that you can stay away from any potential injury there. Um, but the downside is it's a little cumbersome to be retracting the heart upwards and more or less constructing this anastomosis uh, through a somewhat long and deep tunnel. And that becomes uh, doubly difficult when you've actually made the incision in the pulmonary vein confluence because once you make that incision in the pulmonary vein confluence, there is invariably a lot of uh, backflow in the pulmonary veins which can obscure the operative field. More commonly, uh, and my personal preference, is just to retract the heart to the right and approach the pulmonary vein confluence from the left. Um, in this uh, configuration, you make an incision in the uh, left atrial appendage, essentially from the atrial septum all the way up to the tip of the left atrial appendage. Uh, then you make an uh, incision in the pulmonary vein confluence, and uh, the uh, and it's really important to extend this incision in the pulmonary vein confluence out into the branches of uh, the up, upper and lower right and left pulmonary veins in order to make sure you have a very uh, generous sized uh, anastomosis. Now, as I said, when you once you make this incision in the pulmonary vein confluence, uh, you can have a lot of blood from the pulmonary veins obscuring the field, and that's why if you've cooled at this point, you can use some intermittent low-flow cardiopulmonary bypass in order to get better visualization as your anastomosis comes to these uh, complex shapes at the edges of the incisions as they extend into the pulmonary veins. Another caution here is you've got to be really careful that your assistant isn't 
providing exposure by pulling up on the uh, sutures because that'll tend to make the sutures tighter and if you purse string it at all you'll be regretting it later. Um, if there's a very large confluence you can almost always manage this uh, back bleeding with a few well-placed drop-in suction, suction catheters in the pulmonary veins and that'll give you just enough visualization in order to see the divided edge of the pulmonary veins and you can make a reasonably precise uh, approximation to the divided edge of the left atrium. Um, but with more complex shapes this is harder. For example if you have mixed pulmonary venous drainage you may be trying to anastomose something to a very complex shape and uh, I think this is a little more challenging. When you're faced with these challenges in terms of visualization and the complexity of the shape you're trying to sew to, you can make a shift to a sutureless type repair. Using a sutureless type repair, your uh, primary objective is really to sew the divided edge of the left atrium to the pericardium in the area around where you've made the incision in the pulmonary veins. Um, you can be several millimeters away and this uh, really decreases the amount of precision required in order to sew the anastomosis. Um, therefore you don't need intermittent low flow bypass and you invariably never need uh, circulatory rest. Um, and as a matter of fact once you start sewing the anastomosis you might as well start rewarming because you'll be warm just about the time you finished it. Um, the uh, there isn't really any proven advantage to using the sutureless technique for these primary repairs for straightforward uh, total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage with a reasonably large pulmonary vein confluence. There is some suggestion that it is advantageous in patients with mixed uh, pulmonary vein anomalous pulmonary venous drainage and infracardiac anomalous pulmonary venous drainage and uh, I suspect it also is advantageous for patients with a small pulmonary vein confluence. Uh, it, with that, either technique, whether it be sutureless or the more conventional repair, uh, the next step is to close the atrial septal defect and de-air the heart. Um, if you made a right atrial incision, close that and then uh, come off bypass. Um, once you come off bypass, the key approach is to assess the possibility of postoperative pulmonary hypertension. If there is some uh, evidence of pulmonary hypertension, it's probably a good idea to leave the vertical vein open. Um, as a matter of fact, I hardly ever ligate a vertical vein because they tend to close on their own anyway. And by keeping it open, you essentially create uh, the same physiology as you might have if you left a small uh, adjustable ASD. Um, it's something that will close with time and it can decompress the uh, right atrium if your right atrial pressures are particularly high. Um, in the operating room of course the final step is to obtain an echocardiogram to interrogate the success of your procedure. Uh, we almost always use transesophageal echocardiography to assess the uh, pulmonary veins at the completion of the repair. Uh, you'll occasionally notice that you have a higher gradient, particularly on the right side of pulmonary veins, and when you look at the transesophageal echocardiogram, you'll see that they're right at the apex of the uh, image, and that often happens because of the close proximity of the esophagus to the pulmonary veins, and when you see that, you may have a 
uh, artificially high uh, residual gradient, the best thing to do there is just take out the transesophageal probe and use an epicardial probe and uh, you'll often find that taking away that uh, foreign body in the esophagus often improves the uh, appearance of your repair. So for uh, the case that we have, the child had a primary sutureless uh, repair with ligation of a PDA and clo patch closure of an ASD. Uh, they elected for the primary sutureless technique um, due to the finding of a small confluence as well as it being the preference uh, at our institution. The uh, transesophageal echo showed good biventricular function and an unobstructed pulmonary vein confluence uh, with only mild flow acceleration noted at the bifurcation of where the left upper and left lower pulmonary veins joined. The estimated RVSP was around 50 with a systemic uh, blood pressure of approximately 70. And the child was brought to the ICU hemodynamically stable but with the chest open. So what are the common post-operative complications that must be managed in the ICU and how does that affect your surgical decision making? Well, as we talked about, post-operative pulmonary hypertension is certainly the thing we're going to worry about here. And this patient has uh, elevated right ventricular systolic pressure. So uh, I think it was a wise choice for the surgeon to have left the chest open, uh, have a low threshold to use nitric oxide uh, under the presumption that the repair has been effective, and uh, uh, keep the patient sedated and uh, take your time moving forward. You don't need to have a set any kind of land speed records on these patients when they come out like this. Um, uh, other kind of useful points to remember in the post-operative period is the chest x-ray will, will often lag the patient's uh, clinical progress. Uh, it's surprising how the oxygenation might improve, but the chest x-ray will still look quite congested for a period of time uh, after uh, it has uh, um, the respiratory status has improved. Uh, and of course, you're going to look for recovery of any other organs that might have uh, been uh, uh, compromised prior to getting to the operating room. So post-repair pulmonary vein uh, stenosis or pulmonary vein obstruction can occur in about 10, 10 to 15% of patients uh, who undergo uh, repair for a TAPVC. Um, and those with preoperative obstruction are usually at the highest uh, risk for this to occur. So what are some other risk factors that you um, look for uh, in patients? So um, at the time of the initial repair, one of the key uh, risk factors is actually the adequacy of the initial repair. Uh, residual gradients at the end of the procedure are, are a strong uh, marker for a patient who's going to come back with post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis. Um, in terms of gradients, uh, a mean of greater than three or four is certainly concerning. Um, any anatomic appearance of a reduction in diameter of the veins is very important. Um, I guess the other risk factors actually you knew about coming in. Uh, patients with small pulmonary vein confluence, patients with preoperative obstruction, uh, infradiaphragmatic or mixed uh, anomalous pulmonary venous drainage, left atrial isomerism, and um, patients with a younger age uh, or uh, appear to uh, all be risk factors for uh, post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis. And again, this does vary from study to study depending on which one you look at, uh, how big they were, uh, how much sensitivity they had to detect individual risk factors, 
and sometimes these risk factors are kind of lumped together like uh, preoperative obstruction uh, may go along with patients with younger age who you're forced to bring the operating room sooner and also may go along with infradiaphragmatic, etc. So the, these uh, kind of clusters of risk factors tend to occur uh, together. So uh, post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis is often uh, silent as it progresses, and typically uh, there's a worse prognosis if it occurs within the first six months to one year of surgery. So how do you, uh, at your institution, uh, screen for post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis? Well, uh, the key is uh, to have a low threshold um, for, um, con or sorry, uh, not a low threshold for concern, but a, uh, a, a sense of vigilance uh, to look for post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis because exactly as you described, it often progresses silently uh, and uh, it's pretty clear that if you allow it to progress uh, to the point where the veins are atretic and the upstream veins are very, very small, you're in a much worse situation than if you were to have post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis limited to the site of the anastomosis. Uh, when it's limited to the site of the anastomosis, it's much more amenable to a surgical revision. Um, so, at the very least, uh, a screening echocardiogram about a month post-op is uh, absolutely required. Now, if there are residual lesions, uh, then you would certainly increase the tempo and uh, of uh, follow-up echocardiograms. You might go to a CT scan if you want to uh, get a better assessment of the anatomy because the echocardiogram doesn't do a great job of looking upstream due to poor acoustic windows within the lung itself. So back to our case, the patient actually developed an infection during their stay as an inpatient and had a respiratory decompensation which led to an ICU admission uh, and they sort of grumbled along for a bit. Finally. Uh, uh, echo was done and it demonstrated turbulence in all the pulmonary veins as it as they entered the left atrium. Uh, the gradients were consistent with mild to moderate stenosis and the RVSP was around 70. Uh, this triggered a subsequent MRI uh, which showed uh, focal stenosis at the right upper right lower and the left common pulmonary vein uh, as they entered uh, into the atrium. There was mild dilation of the pulmonary arteries, uh, which had flow and which had flow patterns that were consistent with pulmonary hypertension, and there was also a pattern of pulmonary lymphangiectasia. So, with this child, what would be your criteria for reoperation for post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis? Well, it's pretty concerning that you see, uh, um, you know, big gradients, high right ventricular pressures and uh, stenosis, anatomic stenosis in all the pulmonary veins. Um, you described it as being a, uh, kind of localized at the ostium, which is uh, favorable. Uh, the criteria for reoperation include an, an anatomic narrowing of uh, one or more pulmonary veins. And by anatomic narrowing, more than a 50% reduction in diameter is certainly concerning. Um, and uh, high gradients are important to look at by echocardiogram, but uh, as you know, the, uh, there's potential for flow redistribution within the lung, and that can create a false sense of security because as the flow shunts away from the obstructed veins, the gradients may actually uh, remain unchanged or may even go down. Um, but that may belie uh, the uh, progression of disease underneath, 
where the stenosis may actually be progressing. So high gradients are important. A low gradient doesn't exclude a problem. Uh, as I said, right ventricular systolic pressures or any evidence of right ventricular failure is certainly an important consideration. Uh, symptoms, uh, uh, now often these patients are young, uh, you know, four to six months of age. It may be hard to detect symptoms, but troubles with feeding, troubles with growing, uh, certainly would fall in that category. And uh, a rare patient will present with hemoptysis with uh, high-grade obstruction in uh, uh, one of the pulmonary veins. Um, the, uh, one of the things that we look for in terms of defining operability is uh, the status of the upstream pulmonary veins. And uh, this is uh, somewhat controversial. Um, certainly the most favorable characteristic is a focal stenosis right at the left atrial junction with big dilated upstream pulmonary veins. Uh, the prognosis is likely to be less good in patients with very small uh, upstream pulmonary veins and certainly is the worst with atretic upstream pulmonary veins because uh, we haven't had a good track record of re, uh, resuscitating those uh, atretic pulmonary veins. So uh, the, an assessment of the upstream pulmonary veins is helpful and for that usually you want a CT or an MRI. So is there an optimal time or uh, optimal window for reoperation? Well, there doesn't seem to be much advantage to wait. Uh, every indication we have is that the disease tends to progress with time. Uh, it, a spontaneous regression is a reportable event. Certainly, I've never seen it. So I think that you would be fooling yourselves to think that there might be some benefit to waiting. So is there any role for stenting or balloon angioplasty in these patients? Well, the, the simple answer is no. Uh, it, certainly a patient at the first presentation of a post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis, but you really have to make a caveat here that this is an evolving technology, and uh, this may change. Certainly um, uh, uh, stenting may have a role in isolate. sorry, uh, balloon dilation may have a role in isolated uh, pulmonary vein stenoses. Certainly uh, isolated stenoses within the lung parenchyma it may have a role. Drug-eluting balloons have been uh, investigated uh, at least a, a bit. Um, the potential for stents also may evolve with time. Uh, there have been uh, reports using bare metal stents, drug-eluting stents, biodegradable stents, and these are all uh, works in progress. But if you had to answer uh, in broad terms, currently uh, stents are associated with a very high incidence of re-stent instant restenosis. Um, so I think they tend to be uh, advocated more in uh, salvage situations or when you're trying to keep a patient uh, um, in a reasonable condition for subsequent uh, lung transplantation. So in this case, the restenosis was uh, noted within one month of their primary operation and uh, the upstream pulmonary veins were uh, quite uh, dilated, and so uh, the surgeons undertook uh, redo uh, Cole's procedure uh, on this patient, and the follow-up echo just showed a mild flow acceleration in the left common pulmonary veins, and repeat surveillance imaging due to his high risk um, for restenosis demonstrated that the veins had no uh, anatomical stenosis in any of the veins, and that there were just chronic lung changes that were associated with um, 
uh, with him. So what is the appropriate uh, surveillance with the child uh, with uh, post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis? Well, it sounds like a pretty favorable intraoperative result uh, for the post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis. Uh, but all too often we've been caught by surprise where we have a favorable intraoperative result only to find uh, some significant disease progression in the postoperative period that progresses silently to the point uh, where subsequent intervention isn't deemed feasible. That is a failure of surveillance and we work pretty hard to prevent that. Um, at the very least, the patient needs another follow-up uh, e examination at one month. Um, our preference is to follow the patients with a, a specifically dedicated team, uh, including echocardiographers, uh, interventionalists, uh, cardiologists, surgeons, and imaging uh, specialists um, in order to uh, keep a close eye on these patients. Um, the uh, this patient's already proven that they have a propensity to develop uh, aggressive disease, and uh, I think uh, at least on a monthly uh, interval, we're going to need uh, some kind of uh, echocardiogram and 3D imaging, either CT or MRI. Um, now, one, six, or 12 months post-op is our kind of at the bare minimum uh, surveillance screening. But uh, any evidence of progression of the disease increases the uh, frequency and intensity of the uh, uh, surveillance imaging and up, up to every month if necessary. So you talked before about your thresholds for reinterventions. Uh, in the case of recurrent uh, post-repair PVS where you've already had a redo Coles procedure, uh, what would be your preference for reintervention in this type of child? Well, you know, I think it's going to really depend on what the anatomic configuration is of the pulmonary veins. Uh, at the time that an intervention is uh, indicated. So the patient develops uh, high right ventricular pressures, maybe some evidence of RV failure, uh, and has a localized stenosis, let's just say, on the left-sided pulmonary veins near the left atrium, and the upstream pulmonary veins are dilated. Even though we've already done a sutureless repair, we'd probably just do another one, um, and that would probably involve basically resection of the stenotic pulmonary veins almost in their entirety up into the lung as far as we can get to the first order branches at least um, in the hopes that uh, this was due to um, imperfections at the site of the anatomic repair on both occasions. But I'd have to say a patient who's now undergoing their uh, their second repair for post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis, the prognosis becomes increasingly uh, grim. Um, but as long as the disease is localized and the upstream pulmonary veins are rather generous in size, we would probably uh, keep persisting surgically. The rationale there is that the perioperative mortality rate for these operations seems to be very low. So we can do the operations relatively safely. Whether it ultimately has an impact on the patient's overall survival is, is hard to prove, but uh, the perioperative morbidity seems to be reasonable. And so uh, what's the overall prognosis for children who develop uh, 
post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis if you compare them to those that don't develop stenosis after TAPVC or those that get congenital pulmonary vein stenosis? Well, the, the best group, of course, is routine total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage with uh, uh, no post-operative pulmonary vein stenosis. Their survival is uh, probably better than 95%. And if they do have mortality, it's usually related to associated cardiac lesions rather than the pulmonary veins themselves. The subset of 10 to 15 percent that develop post-repair pulmonary vein stenosis falls into a group that frankly isn't all that much different than patients who present with uh, congenital pulmonary vein stenosis. In kind of rough figures, if uh, you were to look at large groups of both populations, uh, survival is about 60% at two years. It fluctuates up and down depending on the series, but it's a very significant uh, risk uh, of mortality in the first couple of years. And is it your practice at your institution to, um, when surgical options seem to be um, limited, to, to then uh, palliate a child uh, for possible lung transplant? Um, if we needed to uh, palliate a child for lung transplant, I guess there's two routes we could go. One we could go with, uh, uh, as we described, the cycles of interventions where we repeatedly go to the cath lab and dilate very aggressively and or use stents, etc. That is one kind of mode of palliation uh, and some centers uh, pursue that quite aggressively in the hopes that the disease more or less will burn itself out and they will continue to uh, dilate as necessary. There are certainly other therapies that have been described where uh, uh, mechanical uh, oxygenation devices have been used uh, and basically in this situation the um, uh, uh, pulmonary artery to uh, um, uh, left atrium uh, is cannulated with a like a Nova Lung type device or some other oxygenator device. Uh, the passive pressure can often drive the blood through the oxygenator and this can decompress the right ventricle in order to keep the child from dying from right ventricular failure, which is typically what they die from. Uh, this could buy time for subsequent lung transplantation. The final alternative is to use uh, some kind of mechanical circulatory support and including a pump as well as an oxygenator um, and uh, that's all also been reported as well. In general, uh, these uh, um, modes of mechanical support are, uh, are new and uh, being uh, used in a few centers, and I suspect they'll probably continue to spread uh, from center to center as the technology evolves and the reports are uh, discussed in the literature. Okay, so if we go back to our case, um, for this child, um, four months out, the child is actually doing quite well. Um, he's had repeat surveillance imaging, including CTs, which show uh, patency of his pulmonary veins with no stenosis noted, uh, and he mainly struggles with chronic lung changes that affect um, his susceptibility to uh, infections. So thank you for taking your time to speak to us today about TAPVC. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.